Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Scramble through our world-class golf courses or shop your way through the square. Be one with nature as you hike or bike through our parks and trails or hunker down at one of our breweries. And when it's time to eat, be sure to bite into our eclectic food scene. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. If you're into designer furniture and you want the sofa that broke the internet, you don't have to go broke to get it. Because Designer Looks Furniture has all the same styles and trends and all the quality, but without the designer prices. Check them out. Designer Looks at Value City Furniture or designerlooks.com. Ready to launch a new career or not sure what to do after graduation? Rumkey is hiring for CDL driving trainees. We pay you to get your CDL license while working for us. Driver trainees receive $18 an hour, great benefits, and Rumkey will pay your CDL costs. Once you're a CDL driver, you can earn $1,000 to $1,300 a week and more than $10,000 in bonuses possible in your first year. Apply today and launch a lucrative career at Rumkey. Apply now at RumkeyCareers.com. Equal opportunity employer. Restrictions apply. From coast to coast, border to border, and around the world, you're going online with Bill Alexander. Laugh and learn while you listen to a brilliant display of radio. Online Online. with Bill Alexander. Hi, everyone. You're online with yours truly, Bill Alexander, here on a Monday evening here on WMCK.FM McKeesport. Mixtape Radio International, mtri.co.uk, awakens.eu, Orca Radio, Owensburg, Owensburg, Kentucky, 99.1 FM Radio Rehoboth, steelfm.org in Scunthorpe, England, 107.5 FM WLDJ Newcastle, 106 The Parkway at Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and of course we're streaming online at italknet.com. Again, yours truly, Bill Alexander, with you on a Monday night. Hope everything's going fine for you this Monday evening. I am so looking forward to this interview this evening. This performer is known by one name. And I'm going to play something here, and you tell me if you know what that one name is. On the phone line with me right now is Melanie. Melanie, how are you doing this evening? Hi, I'm good. Yes, <laughs> That is one of those songs that is so catchy that you know all the words to it real quick and real easy. That was your number it one really hit in the is. U.S., right? Oh, yeah. It was incredible. It was a major hit. Now... Um, and- at that time, I was something I wanted to live down. But um, <laughs> you know, over the years, I've really become fond of that song. Why did you want to live it down? Well, I was, you know, a writer. I wrote songs like Bob Dylan. Right. They called me the female Bob Dylan because there weren't a whole lot of um, people who sang their own songs. Okay. It was just emerging. It was just a time when. Um, 
the singers were the glamorous, pretty people, and the writers were the funny-looking ones who sat in the back room <laughs> and wrote songs. Okay. But um, it was just beginning that, um, you know, Bob Dylan was writing a song, and he performed it, and he sang it. And so it was, uh, it was before the term singer-songwriter. So here I was uh, writing, you know, social commentary kind of songs and my observations and my perspective. And um, I was very, very young, so I, you know, wanted to be taken seriously, you know. And I was a little too cute and <laughs> terrific, too. <laughs> so the pictures, um, you know, the photos would be out there. And um, I, my first hit was Beautiful People. Yes. It was kind of valid about, you know, taking care of each other and humanitarian type of scene. And then my uh, next really big hit was Lay Down with a gospel group. and um, The Edwin Hawkins Singers, Edwin correct? Hawkins, the Edwin Hawkins Singers. And, and there I was, a little white girl singing with a black choir. <laughs> <laughs> and in a time when that wasn't happening either. And... Um, you know, so, so I had those two songs, and then um, uh, FM college radio station started playing cuts from my album, and then um, I had brand new key. So, and brand new key. I had been I had been kind of attacked by the heavy uh, underground guy magazines, you know. Uh -huh. <laughs> And there I was with my cute little face. <laughs> Every time a camera aimed at me, I smiled. I, I grew up with, you know, Kodak brownie camera. And my mom would point it at me and say, smile. And it was an instinct. <laughs> so there I was smiling all the time. And so I, I, I was not, um, I was kind of, I would say I was trumped. <laughs> okay. You know? I got I was, you. I was definitely... You know, made to look more silly. Everything I said was taken out of context, and it was just the way it was. And then I was on a, a label called Buddha, and they had um, a, a lot of bubblegum hits. Mm -hmm. You know, Archie's and Goody, 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 and Yummy, Yummy, Yummy. And, and there I was with this hit. And so, you know, I, I, I felt like I... It was wrong, you know. People were not going to understand anything about me. They weren't going to have, you know, a total picture. Like um, later came Joni Mitchell, and she was angular and angstful, and right. even though she wrote a song like that was just as silly as Brand New Key, um, <laughs> she, she just, you know, she hung out in Topanga Canyon, and it was a whole different thing. So, so I. I had to live it down. With Brand New Key, though, the older I got, the more the more innuendos I heard in the song. Was it written that way? No. <laughs> I was always one of, no, I was always one of those girls, you know, that there'd be that some guys and people would be together and they'd say some off-color thing, and I would be... Huh? <laughs> what? 
why is everybody laughing? And they'd all look at me and laugh because they knew I didn't get what it was. Okay. I was never an innuendo person. Okay. You have to say it right out to me. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> so you you actually performed Beautiful People at Woodstock, correct? Yes. How? First off, how did you get invited to Woodstock? You know, my husband was a record producer, and he had an office in the same building as uh, Buddha Records, um, and Buddha Records was uh, the label I went to after uh, CBS. It was CBS and not Sony. And um, they... It was just one of those things like, Melanie should be there, you know? Right. It was, um, and it was all about, uh, you know, an eclectic mix. It wasn't like we're going to invite the most uh, ticket-drawing people in the universe. It was all about, you know, real music, whatever genre it was. That's what was uh, one of the most magical things. It was Music was coming together from all sorts of sources, blues and folk and jazz and um, pop, you know, like Patti Page people. And, mm-hmm. and it was all kind of a, a, almost a renaissance of music, you know. And people were drawing from so many different um, sources. And I, I was um, all over the map, you know. I would, like I said, I had a... A hit with beautiful people, and then it was uh, brand new tea or candles in the rain, or, or then there'd be a ballad, you know. Mm-hmm. I, but I was not, I was, you know, I, in fact, I was even uh, pressured so many times in corporate music business circles to repeat, write another one of those, you know, <laughs> write another brand new tea. But it, it just, for me, I was like a purist, you know, whatever was in my heart, whatever I was thinking about was what came out in the music. Now, did you, when you performed at Woodstock, did you think that 20, 30, 40, 50 years from then, it was going to have such a significance as it does now? Not at all. I, I, you know, I knew something magical had happened. I knew that I had experienced, I knew that the people in front of me, 500,000 people, all at one time got to see my essence, you know, for the first time, because I, I hadn't performed that much in front of um, big audiences. I mean, big is an understatement. <laughs> it was, uh, I mean, maybe 100 people before I had ever done Woodstock. So I was a real... A novice. I wasn't a veteran performer or anything. And so I, I was very shy. I was all by myself. And um, so I was, I knew I was terrified and I had good reason, you know, I was gonna present myself with my three chords that I knew and uh, my one guitar and nobody with me, no roadies, no stage managers, no percussionists. And, um, in fact, my mother was the one who drove me up to Woodstock, and uh, at one point uh, we got to this hotel, and a guy came, Melanie, Melanie, get in the helicopter. And I'd never been in a helicopter, you know, and 
my mother and I are start running toward the field, and um, I have a guitar, and that's it. And I guess she looked very much like my mother, you know. <laughs> uh, and I, I, just about as we're getting in to the helicopter, the guy said, "Who's she?" I said, "It's my mom." And he said, "Oh, no, mom. Sorry, mom. <laughs> Bye, mom." <laughs> and <laughs> I got in the helicopter. It was only managers and musicians. Okay. And, I didn't. I didn't even have a sense to say uh, she's my roadie, <laughs> right? <laughs> or anything. So uh, we. I went to Woodstock by myself, and I was ushered into a little tent with a dirt floor. And um, I think Richie Havens. I know Richie Havens was singing when I descended the field, and they brought me to my little tent. And I figured they must could have put me in a helicopter because they were in a hurry. But I waited and waited, and um, after he got off, I expected somebody to say, you're next, but that didn't happen. And I waited in that little tent all day, and the terror kept mounting. Oh, I can imagine. I mean, uh, I, I, it would have been better in the sense of uh, having... <laughs> Maybe I might have performed even more spectacularly if I had gone on right away because uh-huh. I didn't have time to get terrified. But by the time I went on that stage, well, first of all, it had started to rain, and I thought, well, there's going to cancel it. Everybody's going to go home. I mean, this was the first day. Like, nobody knew, you know, that this was going to be history. Um, I certainly didn't. I just thought I was in this crazy circumstance. And my, my husband, who is my producer and manager, he wasn't there. He had stayed in England because we were working on a film score. And I really kind of thought this was the direction my whole life and career might go. And behind the scenes, you know, in writing. And um, I was very happy with that because I didn't really feel like I was celebrity material. So I was pretty shy. So I, I I read some information that your mother was a jazz singer um, in early in her life. Yeah, she um, she used to take me to the village and sing in jazz clubs and sang with Sam Man Taylor and sang at Birdland and I would sit there for a while and then wander around the village myself with my guitar. Now, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I grew up in, with a, a pretty wildly eclectic mix of music. My uncle was a union. You know, he was with the teacher's union and he sung, sang labor songs and my mom sang jazz songs, Billy Holiday and Peggy Lee. And, uh-huh. uh, so I grew up with quite a mix of music. And that's why I think my music was drew from all of those influences. So, did your did your mother and father push you into the music business, or did they just no. let you make that decision on your own? No, no. In fact, if anything, it was a time when parents would frown on a career in the arts okay. of any kind. I mean. Uh, now, you know, after Woodstock, I think parents started thinking, my kid could be the next Mick Jagger. You know? <laughs> but, uh, but before that, it was 
No, it wasn't what your child should do. You know, it was um, not what a good reputation is built on. It's not a comfortable life. And they were right. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is, it's a very, very hard road. Whether you're successful or you're not, you're always a target. Now, do you enjoy writing more than you do singing? No, no, I don't. Uh, I wouldn't say that. I, um, they're part and parcel. You know, they, they're just they, they're together. Um, I write songs mostly for me. Okay. But it it has happened that you know Ray Charles sang my song and Dolly Parton. Mm-hmm. Marcus Dyson sang my song. That was when I knew I was a writer. I'm a real writer. You know, other people are singing my songs. But um, especially look what they've done to my song. I think that was recorded by so many different people. Well, I... And and more recently, uh, Miley Cyrus recorded it. Uh, We did it as a backyard session thing. And... Yeah, it, it, but again, musically, I'm kind of all over the map. Very, um, also, my father, um, when I was graduating high school, I did not want to go to college. I didn't want to go for another standard, you know, liberal arts. So I didn't know what I wanted to be. Again, I never thought a person could be a singer, especially the way I look. I didn't think I looked you know, beautiful or anything. So I, I saw the performance that you did with Miley Cyrus and I thought it was, uh-huh. I thought it was very enjoyable to have someone of your era introducing it, the music to a younger crowd. And because that you did that with Miley, have you noticed a, a resurgence in your music or an interest in your music? Um, but yes, I'm sure it all coincided, but, um, because the presence of independent people is, um, a lot more sought after now. And I think that was a, a little catalyst for a reemergence, you know, like people who didn't know who I was or thought I was dead. Okay. Even though I, you know, no, it's just, it's true. You know, I. I perform. I've never retired. I've never put aside a year and said I'm not going to perform. And I've never done a farewell tour. <laughs> I I make a joke. I say I'm going to have a, a recording called my third farewell tour and have it um, because you know so many people do farewell tours. Right. And I just, but I've never even done that. And um, I think that. When you're, I don't know, when when people are uh, thinking that you're older or, and you're finished, you know, there was kind of a, a music business thing that you're older and finished. So, and I just became an independent because I didn't want to be, play the corporate game, basically. You know, I had to, to stay true to myself. Now, um, earlier in the interview, earlier in the interview, you mentioned about uh, singing with the Edwin Hawk singers in uh, "Lay Down," and oh, it's amazing. and it's it's a very unique song. And 
When you wrote that, what were you writing it about? I, I started writing that after leaving Woodstock. Okay. I had the chorus in my head. And um, thinking about the whole, we were so close, there was no room. We bled inside each other's wounds. You know, I, I was just reflecting on our generation of seekers and searchers and questers. So whose idea was it to have the Edwin Hawk singers back you up? Well, I, I was on the same label as they were. Okay. And I said, I said to Peter, oh, it's so amazing if they would sing that chorus with me. And Peter was, um, he, he was not shy. <laughs> he um, took that idea and called Edwin Hawkins and and he was one of those people, Peter, was that he'd say, Melody, Melody, somebody wants to really talk to you. And the truth of it was that Edwin Hawkins didn't really, really want to talk to me. But Peter <laughs> shoved me on the phone with him. And I said, hi. And, and both Peter saying, tell him, tell him about the song. So I, I said, well, I wrote this song. And um, it was after leaving Woodstock. And it's very humanitarian and... Um, I'm trying to describe my song. And, uh, he, he says, well, does it have the Lord in it? Uh, I thought, no, no, not not literally, no. Um, well, I mean, does it have Jesus' name? I mean, mm, no, it doesn't exactly, but he's in there, you know. Right. Uh, and... Uh, he said, well, I'm sorry, Melanie, but we we only do uh, songs praise the Lord, and that's what we do. And I said, oh, I understand. That's okay. And I was ready to get off the phone. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. And Peter took the phone and started talking to him. Next thing I knew, we were in the studio in um, uh, up in near San Francisco, and... Uh, Freddie Kutera was the engineer. Now, Freddie Kutera was the engineer for Simon and Garfunkel. He was like the boy wonder right then. And uh, we, were in, we were in that studio, and Peter said, Melanie, Melanie, let's go where the um, Edwin Hawkins singers are rehearsing down the street. And I said, yeah, but he already said he didn't want to do it. And he said, no, 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 he's really interested. <laughs> Again, you know, he wasn't really interested, <laughs> but um, Peter, you know, had his way, and so I'm, I'm, I go with my guitar, and they're rehearsing in a high school gymnasium, and I open the back door of the gymnasium, and all the heads of the entire choir turn and look at me, and I'm, and I look at Peter, and Peter, you didn't tell them, did you? <laughs> So, um, and Edwin Hawkins is looking, and I start walking down the, um, you know, toward where they're rehearsing on the risers and everything, and um, Peter runs up to Edwin Hawkins and is gesticulating, you know, waving his hands, and I don't know what he's saying, but um, then he gestures to me to come over, and I sat on... Um, one of the chairs and started singing 
lay down, me, all by myself. I didn't have a, any backup, any, any anything. So um, I was singing it to them, and Edwin Hawkins is shaking his head and looking at Peter like, this is not going to happen, you know. And uh, little by little, the choir started singing the chorus with me. And it was, it was magic. Wow. You know? It was absolutely, Edwin Hawkins looked at the choir, he looked at me, he looked at Peter, he threw up his hands, and the rest is history. They came to the studio, we did it in one take. Wow, and that's that, unheard of. Some of the, some of the uh, recordings you'll hear in an eight-minute version. In fact, my son just uh, remastered um, that recording, and it is so magic. I, and I'm sorry to say that word again and again, but <laughs> that's the only description I have. It was they they kept singing, and we Peter kept doing that universal symbol of keep going, keep going with the hand in the air, you know. And um, we just kept going, but um, here we had this eight minute version of the song that I wrote after leaving Woodstock, and the. The vibe in that studio was, uh, it was just really unbelievable. And everyone was so excited knowing they were part of something that just really happened. No, no corporate control, no, you know, planned. We're going to put Melanie together with the Backstreet Boys. (laughs) It wasn't wasn't anything, you know what I mean? So um, it was like a true God did it. You know? So it just felt like that. When because I'm 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 looking at I'm looking at where your where your songs landed on the charts, and as you said, Brand New Key was number one, and Lay Down Candles in the Rain was number six. Do you feel that that should have been higher on the charts? You know, it was it was in the real realm of things because politics. I don't mean politics as in government politics but record business politics plays a part and whatever was going on was going on but it was number one you know i'll tell you why because whether brand new key was number one or not lay down just kept getting played it just wouldn't it wouldn't die you know it just wouldn't it wouldn't quit and then and people kept playing it even after it was finished, it was still being played. Because I've noticed, and I and I also, not only do I do this program, but I also um, work for an oldie station outside of Pittsburgh, and Lay Down is actually heavy in rotation. Um, and it mm-hmm. is. It is one of those songs, and I mean... It, it has an it's gathered an audience even today and people can um identify with it which is actually kind of nifty too because it's one of those songs that transcends over time and that the audience is, that, that the audience is able to grasp onto it even in 2020 it's amazing isn't it because i think really people always say oh it's such a different time wasn't it <laughs> And, well, <laughs> you know, I I see I see the same common denominator in people, and um, you know people behave differently, and there are different groups of people manipulating people's thinking, and 
but mostly people want to be unified and right. they want to be together. They don't want to hurt each other. You know, so I think that message is is will always live. You know, it may not become may not be what um the powers that be are pushing at the time, but it never goes away. Even in the eighties when Elvis Costello wrote What's So Funny About Peace and Love. Yes. Um it it's just you know, there it people are the same. People is are the same. They're the same common denominator. So, of all the music you've done, do you feel that there was one that should have gotten, let's say, more commercial success than it did? Uh, well, I wrote songs like Together Alone or Do You Believe. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought those were where there was a song called If I Needed You, which was on the Photograph album. Um, for on Atlantic, okay, and it just now you may think I'm crazy, but um, a lot of people think that I have been airbrushed out of history, um, and we won't go into why or, or any of that. But um, uh, Chris Novoselic actually was quoted as saying, "Melanie was carefully airbrushed out of history." And it's really true. Um, at one point, I was just not getting into the agenda of what it was. And people really did play into it. And that's when I went it's totally independent. Okay. And, you know, I probably would have, I mean, people would have, I would have been more visible and I would have been more popular. But I don't know if I would have been as happy with myself. Because I know that I get up on stage and I can sing whatever it is that I'm in the mood to sing, and it's real. And there aren't a lot of people doing that, I'm just sorry to say. Well, I I think it's interesting because where your career came in, you were, you were coming in the end of, of the whole free love movement in the sixties. And then you had that period of time, the seventies and then doggone it, disco showed up and really you don't fit into that. You're more of a folk singer and you would have been, I mean, you would have never got much airplay on the radio because back then that's how you made it. That's how you made a hit. It had to be on the right. It had to be on the radio um, oh, it had to be a radio. And there if was it, no internet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So my question is, do you feel if you were recording music today or even back then and we had the internet, do you think you would have been you would have been more well known instead of being like you said, airbrushed no, I, out of history? No, I don't. I don't think because I don't think it had anything to do with what I was doing. Okay. Because again, I was so versatile that I could easily have made records that would have been okay for that time, but um, I didn't want to. Be- you know, so, but but I could have. <laughs> um, but I, you know, again, I had I was I was writing songs that I felt were my observations that might help other people make observations. You know, so I. I wasn't interested in, I really wasn't interested in fame. Okay. Uh, or celebrity. And um, it became about 
being famous. I mean, now people are famous for being famous. You know? Right. You don't even know what to do. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's a, a famous person. What's your name? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, songs are being written by two guys, one from Sweden and one from L.A., you know? 80, 90% of those songs are, that you hear on the radio are written by the same two people. And they have one note and one chord. And it's not an accident because if you make music um, uninteresting enough, then nobody's going to care. You know, the, at one point, I think artists became too powerful for the likings of the powers that they. Okay. Um, you're listening to WMCK.FM in Keysport, PA, 107.5 FM WLDJ Newcastle, Mixtape Radio International, MTRI.co.uk, Awakens.eu, Steel FM at SteelFM.org, uh, WWSX Radio 99.1 FM Radio Rehoboth at Rehoboth, Delaware, Orca Radio at orcaradio.coffeecup.com in Owensburg, Kentucky, and Parkway 106 at parkway106.com in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and streaming online at italknet.com in Brownsville, Pennsylvania, right next to the Monongahela River. As, <laughs> as we are talking to Melanie here online with Bill Alexander, and I had to bring it up, I found the date. In 1974, you recorded a song called the Monongahela River. Yes, I was doing a show in Pittsburgh, and at that it was right before it had become gentrified. You know, down yes, yes, it was pretty rough. You know, and and I don't know, I wasn't totally thrilled about the whole event. I don't know exactly what happened. Nothing. I didn't bomb or anything, but it was just. And I, I remember the night before it had been damp and cold, and I walked down by the river, and I saw it, it was a fire on the water. Uh-huh. And I asked somebody, I said, what, how, how could that be possible? It's water. And he said, yeah, well, there's not much water in there. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I said, really? And I went back to the room, and I wrote the Nongihila River. And the first line is, some get put in prison, others put themselves in one. Pittsburgh, you're the living proof. <laughs> anyway, I did interviews after, um, afterwards, and they had, they had started really putting a lot into uh, the beautifying and the gentrifying of uh, Pittsburgh. Uh-huh. and. The interviewer was kind of irate that I dared to write this song about Monongahela River. He said, do you know that there's going to be a blah and a blah and a this and a that? And I said, I'm sorry. <laughs> the river was burning. I wrote that song. <laughs> well, I will say one thing. And, I, and I, I'm kind of disappointed that it didn't get the airplay that it should have. It's a beautiful song. It really, it really is because someone shared it with me. Oh, and I didn't know about it until about probably three or four months ago. And really? that, and that's oh yeah, <laughs> and that's when I reached out to contact you because they shared it with me, and I'm going, 
that song is really, I mean, it is, it's beautiful because I've never heard it before. And I'm going, I need to get her on because most people only know you for three songs, brand new key, lay down. And what have they done with my song, ma, which is another great song that you did, um, that, that, that charted for you in 1972 and it it is it is a, again with with Ray Charles covering what have they done with my song ma you must have been on cloud nine that someone like Ray Charles actually sang that song. That was my the highlight. I mean, really and truly, when I found out that he was going to record it, I was so excited. You know, if I were a career minded person. Of here, I would have gone to the studio and had pictures taken, but I was shy. I really was. Um, I was just so deliriously happy that he recorded it and he made it his own, especially that part <laughs> where he, um, you know, does the little French party. Yes. <laughs> and it was just so him. And um, yeah, that was like the, the highlight of a songwriter's life you know is to have ray charles singing your something you wrote and um yeah it, and, and i got to see he, him do that with barbara streisand on her television show so it was pretty exciting the 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 new seekers did they have the biggest hit with that song yeah because i um i had it on an album what what else was on that album i had a hit from that album and uh, they just really took my song and they pretty much recorded it the same exact way I did. You know, even even the sound of my voice to a point, you yes. know. Um, so, and they have a hit. But I, I was certainly not resentful. I was real happy that anybody was singing my songs. I, I love when people sing my songs. I would prefer them to you know, do something with it that represents them, you know, but, um, and not just do it to have a hit record, but, um, but yeah, I don't know what, what song did I have from that album that was, that was a hit. The Nickel song was being played a lot. Um, anyway, I wasn't concerned, me, myself, I wasn't concerned about hit records. Okay. Peter might have been concerned about hit records. <laughs> But, um, and you also had Nina Simone did it also, which had a big... Oh, oh, I know. And that is also oh, another amazing version of that song, too. Oh, my gosh. I know. Nina Simone. And that's one of the singers that my mom uh, had every album Nina Simone ever sang. So that, you know, for me, that was not even real that she recorded that song. So whenever you did that, um, with Ray Charles covering it, with Nina Simone covering it, is that when your parents realized or your mother realized that, hey, my daughter can do this because these famous people are covering her work? (laughs) Um, My mom was, uh, you know, wanted to be a singer, you know, a famous singer. Right. And um, it was was kind of a hard, uh, I was living her dream life. Ah, okay. You know? And so it was. That was a, that was hard. But um, my dad was so proud of me. I mean, he was beyond. He, he was always having these ideas, like Melanie. I had a dream, 
and you had chestnut hair. <laughs> my my dad wasn't the person who would really even know what chestnut hair was. Okay. <laughs> to me, just you know, but for some reason, and he would he was very specific about the colors I was wearing. You, I just have a feeling you should have an outfit like this and wear your hair like that. And, I said, thanks, Dad. You know, <laughs> I very much, you know, the hair was going to hang the way it hung, and I had long hair, bangs for all my life, and that's the way it was. That's the way it still is. Now, is there any music that you've written that you wrote for somebody else? Not specifically, but I have a song that um, I, it's called Extraordinary, and I so wanted. Um, to hear Nat King Cole sing this song. Okay. He wasn't alive, so it, that wasn't going to happen. But her, his daughter, uh, Natalie Cole, I was, I, I so wanted her to sing this song, but that wasn't to happen either. But um, I, no, I wrote it for me. But when it was finished, I thought this is, oh, this would be beautiful for. Natalie Cole, uh-huh. and then I have a song that I wrote that would be great for Willie Nelson, but um, again, you know, I'm not a pushy person, and I'd have to have somebody out there, you know, getting it to those people. I could actually see you and Willie doing a duet together, which would probably be me, me too. entertaining. I could totally see that. Yeah, I could really yeah. see that. Um also, well, if you have his number, <laughs> yeah, I'll put you in touch with him. I know a lot of people. Um, All right. So I'm also looking on here that you wrote the th- the lyrics and the theme song for the TV program Beauty and the Beast. Yes, and I won an Emmy for it. Well, congratulations! Really a, a, a funny story because um, I again, you know, my career was. Um, I was very happy to be behind the scenes and write songs and uh, not have people gawking at me and saying things. And, uh, so I had um, this opportunity to write lyrics to um, the the song, The First Time I Loved Forever, which was the Beauty and the Beast theme. And uh, I won an Emmy. But but the crazy thing is, uh, I heard the melody and I immediately the words just flew in, you know. And I I think mostly songwriters, I, I know they like to, to kind of make it like it's a craft and you have to work very hard, you know, <laughs> to get the perfect lyrics uh-huh. and craft the song. And so, but but really for me, they. They just fly out of my head, you know. The lyrics—it's the best songs I've ever written. Just came in an instant, almost in an instant. I mean, I'm not going to say I don't refine words over a period of time. Um, in fact, I just wrote a song that I had started 40 years ago. Oh, really? I never finished it. But you know, sometimes you're just not ready. But um, with Beauty and the Beast, I heard the melody and the line the first time I loved forever and I I I said that's it that is the line and I kept working on it and I wrote it down I handed them the lyrics in two days and the producer said 
oh, well, I think he was shocked, you know. I think if I had been more experienced, I might have waited a while. But um, so he said, oh, well, you know, I ran it by the producer, and the producer said it doesn't have enough his point of view. And I said, oh, well, what is that? You know, so now they want you to really think and analyze and suffer over, you know, these lyrics. So I worked on, I had a yellow legal pad and I filled this legal pad with, I don't know how many verses and how many choruses. And I went over and over and I kept handing things in. And then I would have a meeting with, um, the, the actors, you know, and they would say, well, I don't know. I think it needs more sympathy. It needs more punch. And it needs, you know, and uh, all these things. And so I took my yellow legal pad and I was writing and writing and writing. And I kept turning things in and it kept being rejected. And what I did, now this is before we had emails and computers and complete records of everything. I had the same yellow legal pad. I went back to my first lyric, which I knew deep in my soul, I knew this was the beautiful lyric. Okay. And this was the one. And so I handed it in again, holding my breath and crossing my fingers, hoping that nobody noticed. And sure enough, I got a call. You see, honey, all that hard work paid off. This is great. <laughs> I mean, the very, very exact first lyric I ever handed in was rejected. And I wrote and wrote and wrote. And it was all rejected. I went back to the what I knew was perfect, you know, because it right. just came out of my spirit. And... um they said, that's, that's it. All that hard work paid off. And that's the song I won an Emmy for. So you mentioned earlier when we were talking about being at Woodstock, your husband was in England, and you were writing a music score. What was that for? Yeah, that was um, a movie called All the Right Noises with Olivia Hussey and Tom Bell. And Olivia Hussey had just done a Romeo and Juliet that amazing version and and to me she was like the most beautiful person I'd ever seen in my life you know um so I um I was ecstatic being asked um to write the music to uh this all the right noises I think it was all the right noises so it's something like that so and um so I I was working in the studio with uh John Campbell a major, he became a really big arranger for all sorts of um, award-winning films. And But at that time, you know, he was beginning, but he was uh, quite a serious uh, conductor, arranger. And we worked together, um, and Peter produced it. And uh, I did eventually finish, but... At next door to us in the recording studio what was the Rolling Stones, you know, and I, I never got to meet them. But, you know, just being in this atmosphere of uh-huh. high-flying everything, um, 
and I, I mean, I had never met a famous person up until that point. So uh, I met at that point, his, he was Rod Stewart. And but he was in a group called the Faces. Uh, yes. Or the Small Faces or something. Yes. And um, and and that was the only famous person I had ever met before I went home to do Woodstock and um, and there I am in the hotel lobby uh, somewhere in Bethel and Janice Joplin comes in um, Sly Stone walks by and I was like oh my god I've got to get out of here <laughs> I'm not supposed to be here I'm definitely not supposed to be here um, so so you you wrote a music score. You did the TV theme song. Have you written anything else that would not be for that would be the standard song, but for other things? Uh, no, they just used my songs a lot um, without telling me. <laughs> and I was I'm fond of saying I earn a lot of money. And I don't happen to receive any of it. Um, <laughs> That's sad. The, uh, the, no, it's, I, I'm at the point where I'm getting, um, you know, involved with the legal aspect. Okay. Again, I didn't know anything about the business or what was happening. Peter was the total in charge person of finance and everything. I, I knew nothing. I didn't have a, when he passed away, I didn't have a phone. I didn't have a bank account. I was uh, dumped into the deep end, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it's the most amazing story. Of, it was going to be a story of my life, I think, or the, the, the months that uh, followed Peter's casting when I found out that other people were collecting money for what I had recorded and written and produced. But, um, yeah, no, I, I mean, there's a lot of uses of my songs that um, are everywhere. And I, I was in Boogie Night, brand new key. That's what <laughs> I, I I heard that. And I, I, yeah. I, I found that interesting that they chose that song to be in it. Really, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think the roller girl was the, yeah. the character and that one scene where they sang the song, the whole song. I had taken my son with some of his other 11- and 12-year-old friends <laughs> to the movie because they told me there would be no explicit sex right. in the scene. And we're sitting there in the dark movie theater, and I hear my voice, and I see what is unfolding as right out of a porn movie. And I'm... <laughs> And the, and, the, and the boys are all in, in the front of me, and they're like, you know, <laughs> just staring, you know. Like, yeah. <laughs> and um, I, after the movie, I said, "Everyone here's five dollars." <laughs> don't. I gave every boy five dollars. I said, "Don't ever tell your parents that I took you to this movie." <laughs> because I mean, I I was mortified i couldn't believe this was happening and i had all these boys with me and it was a real quiet ride home <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure is there is there um because you you mentioned the songs being used 
Is there any song that they've used that you felt wasn't appropriate to be used in that situation other than maybe well, Brand New Key? No. <laughs> I think Brand New Key. Yeah. I, I was I was mortified and and but in at the same token the the people have never heard of it before heard of it through that movie yeah so yeah. you know i i don't take I don't take it all too seriously i mean your songs get used they get recorded by people they get put in movies um and i mean it would be nice if I have some kind of compensation for it, but I will. I hope I'm still here when it happens. Right, right. I th- I think just talking to you for the last, oh, 51, 52 minutes, you, ha- you have an amazing story. Have you written your own biography or had anybody write it, f- write one about you? I, I wrote down when my husband passed away, I... He always wanted me to write a book. He said, I, mean, I love the way you write. You have to write a book. And I, I always so say, but I can't remember the order of things, you know? Right. Like, I'll, I'll think of Woodstock, and then I'll say, which came first? Woodstock or Isle of Wight? Or so the Isle of Wight came afterward. And when did I do the Ed Sullivan show? Was that after? You know, he said, it doesn't matter. Just write it down. Just write it down. And he bought me when we were on the road on our last road trip um we were going up to massachusetts we were going to drive we we're going to take our time and stop in cute places and um we went um up to framingham massachusetts and i was supposed to do a show there and that's where he passed away but he had given me a leather journal and he said just start writing he said just Write anything. Write when you were on the Johnny Carson show. Write the Ed Sullivan show and uh, the Vietnam War and and marching and protesting and growing up with your mom. Oh, she she was a protester, by the way. Okay. My mom. We went to uh, you know the the big march on Washington. Me and my mother. So you know. he said, just write it, write, write your story. And I, you know, looked at this blank book for a long time. But then when he passed away, I, I couldn't do anything but write. I had to write. It was, it saved my life, you know, because I really, there were two choices. I could just curl up and take some sort of drug and die, mm-hmm. <laughs> or I could just keep creating and I guess the voice whatever voice that is said don't succumb you know just keep writing keep writing so I wrote my first line was sometimes you don't know you have a story until it has an end oh very deep and and then I wrote how our relationship was so crazy it was you know, we were so unlike each other. He he was not um, formally educated in any way. He he was, grew up on the streets. You know, he was a refugee from the Ukraine. Um, and he met me, and he saw he saw what it was. He just looked at me, knew that I was. He would always say, "Melanie, you don't know who you are." 
you don't know who you are. And um, whatever that meant, he knew. <laughs> and uh, so I, I wrote my story. And I uh, met a uh, producer of musicals and a theater producer. And he said, I always wanted to do a musical with your songs. And when I heard that Peter passed away, it was like I had lost my best friend because I had followed you two from the beginning. And so he, we put together a musical from my notes okay. about my life. And, but that's as far as it got. And, and it's kind of an unlikely musical, really, because um, it, it's pretty dark, but it, it got amazing reviews. And we did it, never went anywhere but Rochester. Mm-hmm. But we did it for a long time and with a great cast. And uh, it just, it, it, the, the, the director didn't really, I don't think, really wanted to go anywhere else. You know, he was very happy that he got his um, his uh, bucket list. One of the things he wanted was to make a musical with Melanie. Right. And uh, that was it. But it's all there. I have a book. For sure, well, there was someone who wanted to do a screenplay, and you know how things go. Again, I'm not um, a very pushy person, so you know people have to. I'll have to find someone who's interested in uh, doing a book, and of course, you know the book people that I have talked to, all they want is pictures of you. And famous people, and right. who you slept with. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. <laughs> I was married. Yeah, I was married in a pretty conventional way. <laughs> I had three children. All I want to do after a show is go home. Okay, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Melanie, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed Aww, this. Thanks a lot. And uh, again, good luck to you and everything you do. Um, are you? I know with the with the whole pandemic and the and the situation going on, are you still performing? Yes. Um, in fact, I've been writing like crazy. Uh, it was like um, I, the plug was pulled, <laughs> and all of a sudden, things just started flying through my head. And we've been writing. My son um, is my partner, really, and. He's a, a virtuoso guitarist, and he he's a great musical creator. And we've been writing, and I'm he's working. He's also a great engineer and t- very technical as well, um, which bores me. But but he um, you know set up this whole thing in our living room with this green screen. Uh-huh. And, um, so we're going to do a live stream show. So if yeah, it would be great to promote it. Um, as soon as I know when, please check my website out. And well, not my website so much as my um, uh, I have Patreon, you know, for because yes. I am independent. Yes, um, I'm I'm dependent on my supporters to, you know, uh, keep it so that I can continue doing what I do. And so we're. Um, through Patreon and my Facebook page, I'll be advertising and telling people, uh, you know, when and where. I was hoping to have it before the end of the month. Well, and actually, actually sell tickets. You know, right, right. Like a real show, you know, right? 
live from your living room. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, good luck to you again. Thank you very much, and um, we'll keep we we'll keep our eye out for when that show is, and uh, we'll do everything yes, we can please. to help promote it. Oh, thank you, thank Thanks you, a lot. Melanie. You have a great night, and uh, hopefully, we talk again again real soon. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Have a great night. Bye bye. You too. Bye bye. Online with Bill Alexander, Melanie. Here on the program this evening, that's going to wrap up this program. We'll be back in next week with an all-new program here online with yours truly, Bill Alexander. This has been a Million Dollar Baby production. For more information, go to italknet.com. Rumkey is hiring CDL drivers age 19 and up, and drivers are paid based on experience. Rumkey CDL drivers earn $1,000 to $1,300 per week and more than $10,000 in bonuses possible in their first year. Rumkey drivers are home daily, work in a recession-resistant industry, receive great benefits and performance incentives. Start a lucrative career and apply now at rumkeycareers.com. Equal opportunity employer restrictions apply. If you've ever been a renter, you know it's stressful to find a place with everything you love and nothing you don't. But did you know Zillow does rentals? It makes the search so easy. They have filters for pretty much everything, so you can find that place that's in your budget, but also isn't a shoebox. Or a place that's close to your parents, but far enough they have to call first. Plus, it's easy to apply, request tours, and pay rent in the app. Head to ZillowRentals.com and find your sweet spot. Switch to Metro by T-Mobile and save more. Get the new iPhone SE now with 5G at the lowest price in prepaid. Just $99.99. I post a lot. And thanks to the iPhone SE with 5G and advanced 4K camera, I'm snapping and sharing while my followers are smashing the like button. Switch and get the iPhone SE for just $99.99. Only at Metro. Save more versus national prepaid brands. Limited time offer in store only. Price for 64 gigabyte model with eligible port, $60 plan and ID. See 5G device coverage and access details at MetroByTMobile.com. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton.